Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. If uh, you have your Bibles with you, then go ahead and open those up to Romans chapter 10. If you don't happen to have one, we do have some of the pews in front of you. You can look in there. And we have been studying through the book of Romans this year and just taking it as it comes. And we're going to finish chapter 10 today before we jump into our Christmas series um, next week and through the month of December and uh, into January. So it'll be into January before we come back with Romans chapter 11. But uh, this has been a really, a really good time coming through the book of Romans. And it's been, uh, we've learned a lot, haven't we? It's been really good. Um, let me just say about that Operation Christmas Child thing that was mentioned. That, um, I have been able to be on the receiving end of the boxes when we were in Albania. And it really is a wonderful thing because they do try really hard to distribute those through local missionaries and churches that will hand those out and then be able to have a tangible contact. So for all of you who have participated in that, thank you. Uh, that's an awesome, worthy thing to be able to do. Okay, Romans chapter 10, and we're going to finish it up. So we're going to start in verse 13 and kind of go down to the bottom. What we've seen in Romans chapter 10, unlike chapter 9, in a sense, is that, of course, Romans 9, 10, and 11 all have to do with the nation of Israel. But Romans chapter 10, without question, is probably the greatest chapter in your Bible dealing with Gentile salvation, right in the middle of this time where we're talking about the aspects of Israel. And that's because Romans 9 deals with Israel considering the time past, prior to the church age, the time in which we live. Romans 10 deals with the context of Israel, which we'll see at the very end of, this, of these verses today, uh, within the context of the church age, the time in which we are right now, which is also the time where the primary focus of the gospel seems to be received by Gentiles more than uh, historically Hebrew people. And then Romans chapter 11, when we get around to that, we'll deal with Israel's future going forward. Uh, has God uh, written them off? Of course not. We'll see that in Romans chapter 11 when we get to that point. Um, there's no question in the scriptures, there's no question in your mind if you spend any time reading the scriptures, that the one great task that Jesus Christ has left to all of us in his church is that we would reach the world with the gospel. Amen. I mean, we need to be about his business. I mean, when Jesus Christ left us his last words before he left planet Earth physically, uh, they were crystal clear. There was no doubt about it. It wasn't hard to understand that he wanted us to reach the world. That's one of the reasons why we chose the name REACH for our missions ministry. Uh, that's what we're all about. That's what we want to do. We want to participate in helping to reach the world with the gospel before it's too late. But if it was that clear that Jesus left it for us, if it's that clear that any uh, even casual reader of the Bible would see that that is our ultimate job is to reach the world with the gospel, it begs the question, why is it not getting done? I mean, it begs the question, why is it that we seem to be getting further behind every year that goes forward? And so we're going to look at some of these things today because what I've titled today's message from verse 13 down to the end of the chapter, is the challenges of reaching the world. And so if you'll just follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 13, and you just follow along in your Bibles. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. For, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, 
and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll break this down. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, our prayer is the prayer that we should always have at a time like this. We come before your word and our desire is that we would be emptied of ourselves, that we would be filled with your spirit, that you would lead us, that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would make very clear to us exactly what it is that you would have us to do and to apply. Lord, all all of us that are here, all the number of people that are here with uh, the different problems and circumstances that they're going through, uh, may each need a unique word, a unique thought, a unique application for their lives. And Lord, you are the only one that can possibly do that. So as we systematically go through what you have said in your word, I pray that your spirit would make application. I pray that the people that have come here would find what they need to find, that they would understand what they need to understand. And probably most importantly, without question most importantly, for any that are here and might not yet be fully confident that they have a home in heaven after this physical life is over, that today would be the day that the light would go on, that they would understand and they would finally surrender their heart and their life to you as their Lord and Savior. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, the challenges of reaching the world, the first thing we're going to look at is this process. And it comes out of those first few verses. It's, it's fairly intuitive. It says it very clearly. We've provided a little diagram for you. When we talk about the process of the gospel, we typically think of it going from God to man. Uh, in this case, the Holy Spirit decided to record it for us in a reverse logical order, starting with man and working its way back to God, okay? And so that's kind of how we're going to do it. Again, you have a diagram in your notes, and little by little, we're going to fill in all the blanks. And the first one's very, very uh, simple. It's to be saved. Verse number 13 says that uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And without question, to be saved is the single most important decision that any person on the planet could ever make. It's more important than anything you could possibly ever do. It's more important than anything you could possibly ever pursue. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, the Bible says very clearly, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Right? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You could be the most successful person in the world. You could be the most famous person in the world and die a lonely, terrible death without Christ and without hope in this world. And it would all be for naught. So without question, the most important thing that anybody could ever do is to be saved. And that's the process. That's what we need to understand. That's getting the gospel to the whole world. That's reaching the world. That's carrying out the Great Commission. That's asking um, um, people to do what Jesus wants them to do, and that's surrender their heart to him. If we ask the simple question, how then can I be saved? I mean, we've talked about this for weeks, at, weeks on end, but please understand this. When we talk about how can I be saved, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about what I do. It's not about how good I am. It's not about the church I go to. It's not about my family history. It's not about my preoccupation or my occupation. It's not about any of those things. It is about the Lord Jesus and only the Lord Jesus. And that's a really important thing. Through chapter 9 and leading into chapter 10, we've taken some side detours and talked a little bit about a popular teaching that is around the world. And commonly referred to as Calvinism or Reformed theology. There's some verses in chapter 9 that we explained when we were back in there. If you asked a Calvinist, how can I be saved or what can I do to be saved, the Calvinist's answer would be, uh, you can't do anything. You just have to sit around and hope that you're one of the elect. 
But if you're a Bible believer, you believe what God says, and he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's just that simple. It says that confession in verse number 10 is made unto salvation. And so that's their next blank, obviously, on this process working backwards, right, is to, is to call upon the name of the Lord. It says in verse number 9 that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, ultimately you shall be saved, right? It says that we are to, in verse number 14, how, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? Or, or whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So they have to call on him. It's all about Jesus. You're calling on Jesus Christ. You're not calling on a church. You're not calling on a religion. You have to call on to him. Now, when we do this, and we're going to talk about this more in just a second, and we talked about it a little bit last week, I don't want you to be uh, freaked out by this idea that whoever calls on him is some sort of a new legalistic standard that if you don't speak out loud with audible words, somehow your salvation doesn't count. Okay, I don't want you to worry about it being some sort of a thing like that, like, why well, I prayed silently in my heart, does that really matter? But really, all I want you to understand is calling out to the Lord is nothing more than the natural response. It is the natural overflow of the next step going backwards in the process, and that's very clearly to believe. And that's very clearly to believe. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Without question, this idea of believing is the most important step of all the steps. Of all the steps going through this backwards list, if you don't get the believe one down, you're, you're hosed. You're done. I mean, you're in trouble. You got to get, this is the one that makes all the difference in the world. And so we're just understanding the process as God laid this out. We have to believe, as it says in verse 14, in him, right? We have to believe in him, because it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just believing. There's a lot of people in this world that believe a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot of religious people that believe the, the, the creeds of their religion. There's a lot of uh, non-religious people that believe in science or whatever it is they believe in. It's not just belief alone. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what he says. In Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, we have the story of the Philippian jailer we've seen before. Uh, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And so belief, very clearly, is stimulated by this idea of hearing. Okay, this idea of hearing. Again, verse number 14, And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? In other words, if you have not heard of Jesus Christ, you don't know about Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to talk in a minute about the audible aspect of confessing with your mouth, but, but I want you to understand, if you haven't heard, well, I just read the Bible and I got saved. Well, that's fine, because by reading the Scriptures, you heard of Jesus, right? We heard of Him. And so you're getting the information. You're, you're, you're hearing the truth about who He is. If you don't know the truth about who He is, if you have never heard of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for you to believe. Is that not fair? That's fair. And so, obviously, this is the process. It's very intuitive. I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. The next one, to preach. The next one is to preach. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, a preacher is just simply somebody who tells you about Jesus. He's the one who delivers the news. He's the paper boy, right? He's the guy who tells you what he understands to be true. He is the witness of all the things he has experienced, all the things that are true. Now, I just want to stop for a second because 
As we have gone through this text, as we have gone through even the week prior, I want you to think about this idea because the Bible does put a lot of emphasis on it, and it is this, that the spoken word is very powerful. The spoken word is very powerful. Now, in our church, we are very well known for being a a strong emphasis, putting a strong emphasis on the written words of Scripture, and, and that's rightly so. That's fine. But I want you to understand something. As we walk through these verses, I want you to notice God's emphasis on the spoken word, okay? In fact, I want to remind you of a couple of verses of Scripture that I think sometimes are pushed to an extreme, maybe not in error, but beyond the exact application of the words God chose to give us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, the word scripture has the word script, which means it's written, I get it. But it is given by inspiration of God. Some of you may have a different Bible version that might say God breathed. That's not an error, that's accurate. It is literally the breath of God. The the inspiration literally is the very breath of God. The, The word that is translated inspire could be wind or breath or air or spirit. Okay, that's the way that the word is used. The scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. God's inspired word begins at its very inception as God himself speaks it out. The inspired form is a spoken form in the, origi- in the original uh, uh, trans- uh, transformation or the re- transmission, excuse me, is the word I was looking for. Uh, of the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, again referred to for the scriptures, but notice this. For the prophecy, in the context back in verse 20 is the scriptures. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No, they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, without a doubt, somebody wrote it down. And without a doubt, they wrote it down right. That's fine. I just want you to see that when God inspired, when God moved, when God gave his word, there's something about this idea of preaching. There's something about this idea of speaking. There's something about verbal communication. God just likes it. Do you see that? He just likes it. He likes for us to take a stand. He likes for us to speak. He wants us to proclaim. He wants us to preach. He wants us to tell people the truth about who he is and what he has done for the world. And there's, listen, the fact that we have a printing press, the fact that we can put printed words out everywhere is a wonderful tool. We should use it. But we should not discount the thing that God counts on, and that is preaching his word. Listen, preaching the word of God, friends, you got to understand, absolutely can go much further than the written words can ever go. Do you understand that? I had the privilege, most of you know by now, that I got to spend 14 years of my life as a missionary in a country of Albania. When I went there in 1992, just after the country opened up from being closed, communist, atheistic country, there was no Bible in their language. Let me just say that again. I arrived in the country, single guy, living in in an orphanage, okay, and they had no Bible in their language. And yet I through a translator who was cool enough that I decided to marry. (laughs) Fortunately, she was a girl. (laughs) Preached the word of God and many, many people believed on him and got saved. Because it it was a spoken message. There was no written availability at that time. 
It was a spoken message. And God was able to take his word. Listen, I'm going to tell you that today, all over this planet, there are people standing up and preaching God's word to peoples who have no written word available to them. Does that mean we shouldn't try to get it to them? Of course not. We should try and help get it to them. Because the written word is awesome. It's objective. It never changes. It's black and white. It's written in front of you. It's authoritative. It's all of that. But we can get the word of God to people who may have never read a word of a Bible if we will preach it. That's the message I really want to get through to you today. That's the part of the process I want us to understand. Yes, as a recipient, you must believe, but you as a Christian must preach. This is the thing I want you to understand. This is critically important. Listen, why, in it, why else would God have made the emphasis like he did? 1 Corinthians 1.21 For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You need to understand that historically, when Paul is writing this in the first century of the church, the word of God is primarily just a spoken word. They are in the process of writing it. Some people are making copies and distributing them by hand, and that's all fine because that was the beginning of the transmission. But you need to understand that God on purpose put this in here and said, look, it makes me happy when people do something as foolish as standing up and preaching this message to other people. God says, I like that. And when you do that, people will get saved. People will get saved. That's why it shouldn't surprise us in 2 Timothy 4, 2, the command is preach the word. Preach the word. Again, don't, don't take it to the crazy extreme to say, well, then I won't write it. I won't photocopy it. I won't hand out tracts. No, that's not the point. The point is preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And God, in his wisdom, decided when he gave us the Holy Scriptures that, is, that are objective and written and never change to emphasize the spoken element, that it pleases him that they are, that they are spoken, that they are preached and this method does not need to be changed. It does not need to be updated. There is no better idea than the idea that God has given to us. It is just that simple. How shall they hear without a preacher? People need to hear, and we need to tell them about it. Well, the next one is, well, how shall they preach except they be sent? Except they be sent. Now, at this point, when we talk about those that are sent, that personal pronoun, they, up until now, has always been about they, the hearer, they, the recipient, they that need to believe. At this point, the, the personal pronoun, they, shifts to the Christians who are supposed to preach. How shall they, the preachers, be able to preach except they be sent? And this is an important thing. Because the literal definition, if you take that definition to be sent, one who is sent, you who have been in this church a long time, you know very well, there is a Bible word that literally has the definition, one who is sent. It's an apostle. That's what an apostle is. He is one who is sent. That comes from a Greek root, that word, but the, the, the word that we use today that comes from the Latin base of our language would be the word missionary. Literally the exact same meaning, a missionary, an apostle, one who is sent. How shall they preach except they be sent? 
So I've got a couple of applications I want us to see together, and the first one is a specific application, and that's what I want to look at first, a specific application. This will be more of a historical application. It will be more of a doctrinal application. Jesus Christ himself sent his disciples. When he sent his disciples, they begin to be called for the first time apostles. And we see it in many places. John chapter 17 and verse 18. This is Jesus Christ praying to the Father in the garden. And he says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Who are the them that Jesus Christ has sent? In the context, it's very clear. They are his disciples. They are those who are the apostles. Similarly, John 20, 21. Then said Jesus to them, the disciples, the apostles, the immediate audience to whom he was speaking, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. They're apostles. That's what the word means. Jesus sent them. They're apostles. It's just that simple. Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, we see that the Holy Spirit now sends the first missionaries through the instrumentality of a local church. Acts 13, 2, 3, and 4. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Who are the they that did the fasting, the praying, the laying the hands, and the sending them away? It's the local church. It's the authority of the leadership of the local church. But it goes on and says, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So we have this specific application that historically in the first century there was a special group of people called the apostles who were sent out with the message. And it continues on in a more broad understanding where we have the church of Antioch, the model church for our day-to-day, the Gentile church that sends forth the first missionaries, Saul and Barnabas, becomes the apostle Paul. And, and they're sending out these missionaries. These, there's something special about a particular calling and a preparation and sending of men who will serve vocationally as missionaries and pastors and teachers. And if you take the time to study the, the, the subject of spiritual gifts, anytime there's lists of spiritual gifts, there, there, there's some here in this chapter and some here in this chapter and some here in this chapter. Whenever apostles are listed among the lists, they're not in every list. But they are in 1 Corinthians, for example. They're also in Ephesians chapter 4. Whenever apostles are listed, apostles are always listed first. You ever wonder why? I mean, apostles have to be listed first, right? They're mentioned first in the spiritual gifts because they're the pioneers. They're the guys who start a new work in a new place. And once the apostle goes and begins and pioneers a new work in a new place, then there's room for others that would be prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that can come along and continue that work. Similarly, we would have the same thing with missionaries. Because even in the context of today, missionaries are people who, not always, it depends on where they go, but a missionary is a person who will be one who will pioneer a work in a new area. And until that person goes and pioneers a new thing in a new area, then there's really no need for others to come behind him as prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, right? I mean, they're going to be listed first. 
That's the, that's the historical understanding. That's a doctrinal understanding of what it means to be sent as a preacher. Okay? Listen, no new outreach occurs without these special sent preachers. And they require proper training. They require proper proving. We could, if we wanted to, infer another statement that would say, how shall they be sent without being trained? And so we dedicate ourselves around here to teaching you the Word of God. So while that is an accurate understanding, and you should understand it because it is really important, and we're just studying the Bible today, I want you to know that there is still another application, and this is equally valid. This would be the practical application. We'll call it a general application. Because it is not wrong to say that we are all sent to preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15, this is one of the places where the Great Commission is quoted. And he said unto them, I get it, the immediate audience are the disciples, we'll clarify. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Yes, it was given to the disciples, but Jesus Christ is forming his church. You can make the application that this command is given to the church. You, therefore, can make the application that as a member of the church, it is given to me. And that would be accurate. But maybe in my mind, anyway, it is never more clear word for word than it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. And it says, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Who is the us in that sentence? Well, it's everybody who's saved. The us is everybody who's saved. He's reconciled all of us who have received him, right, to himself in Jesus Christ. Keeping that in mind, follow the personal pronouns us. Listen, I'm going to start again. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled all of us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to all of us the ministry of reconciliation to it, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto all of us the word of reconciliation. Do you see that? Now then, we all, I'm, I'm obviously adding for emphasis, our ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. And, and, the, and the, the picture that God gives us, this ambassador for Christ, an ambassador is an official representative who is sent to speak on behalf of the sending power. That's what an ambassador is. That's who we are. That's important. They're sent as official representatives, and they're sent to speak on behalf of the one that sent them. So this is the process that must be followed if anyone's going to be saved, right? So I have a question. What does the newly saved person do now that they have eternal life? Well, what they're going to do is, now that, now that you are saved, now that you have believed and received the Lord Jesus Christ yourself, you now also are sent to others, as we just saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Is that right? To keep the process going over and over. That's why I made your diagram cyclical, not linear. Because by the time you win somebody else to the Lord, they jump right on board as one who is now sent with the ministry of reconciliation to continue this process going generation after generation after generation. Let me ask you something. Aren't you thankful for the person who took that command serious and shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't you feel like 
you owe it to the next generation of people to continue to share that message with them? I do. I certainly do. That's an important thing. And you know what? It's a challenge to reach in the world with the gospel. Because if we don't follow this process, it's just never going to happen. But if we do, then I like to say it like this. It's a beautiful thing when we obey. (laughs) It's verse 15. And verse 15 quotes Isaiah 52 and verse number 7. Right? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. You can make a cross-reference to Ephesians 6 that your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Why does God associate your feet with the gospel? Because we are to be sent. We are to take it to others. We are not to expect that they come and ask us. We are to take it to them. And when we do that, it is absolutely a beautiful thing in God's eyes. He loves that. Okay, so the process can be a challenge if we don't follow it exactly rightly, but the second thing we're going to look at is a problem. There is a potential problem, right? It goes on in verse 16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel, right? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? A quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. So to obey the gospel in the context of verse 16 is to believe the gospel. That's what it means. To obey is to believe. There's not an additional works requirement. It's given to you in the context. To obey the gospel is to believe God's report. The problem is, is that they, the world, the whosoever that might call upon the name of the Lord, they're not doing that. They've not all obeyed the gospel. They've not all believed the gospel. The problem is not everybody's getting saved. (laughs) And the reason is it's a lack of faith. Remember I told you, believe, obviously, is the one key out of all those steps. The steps are important, but the one that's most important in somebody getting saved is the one about believe. It's the one key step in the whole process. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So somebody's preaching, and somebody's hearing, but not everybody's believing. And because it was not mixed with faith with those that heard it, they're never going to enter into that eternal rest. Hebrews 4 goes on to verse number 6, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. So go back to Romans chapter 10, verse number 17. So then, faith, because that's the thing that's missing, that's the thing they need, right? Faith cometh by hearing. Well, we saw that in the process. And hearing by the word of God. So I read that and I think to myself, huh, well, maybe they don't have faith because they're not hearing God's message. I mean, if we're not taking the message to them, They can't possibly have faith. If you were here last week, I had my wife share her testimony, and similar to my own, both of us received Jesus as our Savior the very first time we ever heard the gospel. And her testimony has the story of my pastor of my church back then sharing Romans 10, 17 with her over and over again, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And because they had no word of God in Albania, there was no chance for her to possibly have ever heard it or be able to put her faith in it. But once she had the word of God, even though it was just spoken to her, right? 
she was able to understand that that is something that she can put her faith in. So maybe they don't have faith because they're just not hearing it. But notice verse 18 back in Romans 10. Paul interjects. It's almost as though Paul is saying, okay, the Holy Spirit's leading me to say all this. He's like, wait a minute, but I say, now this is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't confuse yourself. But Paul is almost like he can't wait to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I want to throw this in there. Verse 18, have they not heard? It's a rhetorical question because he answers it, yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, their words unto the ends of the world. And what he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 19.4. We're going to look at Psalm 19 in just a second. This is an important thing. Have they not heard? Paul says, wait a minute. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They might not know because they haven't heard, but wait a minute, they have heard. They absolutely have heard, and he's going to prove it. And he goes to Psalm chapter 19, and I want you to see this because it says their sound went out and their words went out. And we're going to look at these two things, kind of compare them together. Their sound is what we'll call the general revelation. The general revelation of God. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. Hang with me. Six verses, I'll go quickly. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Do you see what's going on here? There's, nature is declaring the glory of God, and it is referred to as speech, language, voice. Their line has gone out through all the world, the earth. This is what uh, Paul quotes in Romans 10. And their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit to the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. God, through the witness of his physical creation of nature, is speaking to man. Now, it's just a sound. As contrasted with words, a sound is less distinct. It's less clear. But it does go out through all the earth. It talks about the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars. It talks about how day unto day, the cycle of a day and a sun rising and a sun setting, day unto day uttereth speech. So if you're not familiar with some of these references I'm going to throw out, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Just listen and let it soak in. If you are familiar with the Bible a little more, some of these things I'm going to say are going to really ring true for you because the sun, that burning star in the sky, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Malachi chapter 4. And it rises every morning, the new day, which doctrinally for you who study the Bible would be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. Jesus Christ in John chapter 9 is called the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus Christ is like the sun. So when Jesus Christ is on planet earth, it's like daytime. The sun is out. So the nighttime then would be the church age. When the light that shines at night is the moon. The moon, the dead planet that has no light of its own, but merely reflects the light of the sun. Christian, that's you, that's me. We have no light of our own, and in a time of night, when the sun of righteousness is no longer physically present on planet earth, through us, he reflects his light into this dark and dying world. The sun sets every night, blood red, a picture of the crucifixion. 
And every single day, day unto day, sunrise, sunset, day unto day, the gospel is painted as a picture for every man, everywhere, every single day. That's what God is saying. It is just a sound. It's not as distinct, but he's communicating. And Paul says, don't they realize the words are going out? The sound is going out. Well, let's talk about the words. We'll call that special revelation. Special revelation. Psalm 19 continues. I'll give you the next three, four verses. And it makes a shift, the transition now. The law of the Lord, that's God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's salvation. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Because the word of God is very clear. It is very distinct. It gives specific understanding of God's message. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And maybe they haven't heard, but wait a minute, they have heard. Because everybody's been exposed to nature because God set it up that way. And oh, by the way, historically speaking, now go back to Paul in the first century and a historic application of what's going on here. By the way, Paul says, wait a minute, I... I've kind of helped get the word to the ends of the world myself. I know that they've heard it, God's word. He says, but I say, in other words, I know they've heard. Romans 15, verse 19. Through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, I fully preached the gospel of Christ. Illyricum would be right about the edge of that known Middle Eastern area of the world. And at Paul's day, it would have been considered the uttermost. Paul said, look, I've taken the gospel as far as I could possibly take it. He ultimately gets to Rome. And listen, there's people that live beyond those places. But he says, I've fully preached the gospel of Christ from here all the way out to the uttermost. But notice Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, and this is important. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Well, that's a pretty bold statement. Have you ever noticed that? Paul says, you in Colossae, okay, in, in, in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, okay, you've heard the gospel. It came to you, but not just to you. You've heard it, but it was also preached, it says, to every creature which is under heaven. Really? I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that in Paul's day, the gospel was preached to every single creature under heaven? Y'all are thinking, I don't know if I should answer. <laughs> I have a funny feeling there's a trick question here. <laughs> and, and I say that because, that, by the way, that's the way I think when I read stuff. And so if it'll help you, let me just tell you, I think that stuff. You're like, good, I think that too. Here, here's what you need to understand, and this is why I want to bring this up. Personally, I, first off, I don't know. We don't know, right? There's no record. If every single living, breathing creature in the first century heard the gospel, I doubt it. Did people in Iceland hear the gospel? Did people in South Africa hear the gospel? How about the South Pacific Islands? Did they hear the gospel in Paul's day? I don't know. 
Probably not. Which brings up this point, and I want you to get this. Because when he said it was preached to every creature under heaven, there are two ways to understand it, and you got to get this. You guys will get it because you're still in school and you're smart. It does not mean that it's preached to every creature without exception. It means that it's preached to every creature without distinction. You get the difference? Not without exception. Not that there is no living, breathing creature that didn't hear. It is that we, without prejudice, share this message to everyone, wherever we are, at any opportunity that we have. We preach it to every creature without distinction. We don't distinguish between, well, you can have it, but you can't, wait a minute, you're not a Jew, you can't have it. We don't do that anymore. We preach it to every creature. And I believe that's what Paul's trying to say, and I think that's what he commands us to do. Preach the gospel. Listen, not all of you are going to be called to the far-reaching ends of the world, but you can preach the gospel wherever you are to whomever God puts in front of you without distinction. You're never going to get to everybody without exception. That's God's job. But Paul can say historically, we did that. We've done that. And I would say that each generation has a responsibility to get God's special revelation, his word, to the ends of the world in their generation. And that's why it's so important that we partner with missionaries and train our own people to go and be missionaries. We've got to get this job done. We each have the responsibility. Every generation, there's a whole bunch more people born that don't know and need to know. Every generation carries the responsibility to their generation. So it's a challenge to reaching the world with the gospel because not everybody that hears is actually going to believe. All right, the last point we're going to see in the last three verses, I'm calling it the provocation. And the the example is Israel. We're going to wrap it up with Israel, verses 19, 20, and 21. So some people, like Israel, are privileged to know the truth very well, but they refuse to listen. They refuse to obey. That's kind of what we talked about. Now think about it. Forget Israel for just a second. Just think about yourselves. Think about people you know. Think about friends. Think about family members. I don't know. After all the blessings of God in their life, continuing to reject him is a provocation to God. Now, Israel is a wonderful example of a privileged group of people who are given chance after chance after chance and kept thumbing their nose at God and would not respond. And so, Paul says again, like he says in verse 18, but I say, and he Changes gears a little bit. He says, but I say again, did not Israel know? Also a rhetorical question because he knows full well that they know. What exactly is it that Israel should know? Well, Israel should know that because of their rebellion, God was going to cast them out and God was going to bring the Gentiles in. He said that over and over. So in verses 19 and 20 and 21, we have quotations from the Old Testament. There's three different, one for each verse. In verse number 19, we're going to call it the righteous answer. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. It comes from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 21, which I do want to read for you. They have moved me to jealousy, God says, which that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. So what's God going to do? I will move them to jealousy, which those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger, 
with a foolish nation. By the way, barring a rare exception that we might have a Jewish Hebrew descent person in the audience today, all of us, the rest of us, are in the category of Gentiles. And as such, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says, you're not even a people and you're foolish. Congratulations. That's who we are. And God is going to use us to get Israel's attention. Which, by the way, thank you. (laughs) No problem. I call this the righteous answer. Because God's answer to Israel is righteous. God's answer to Israel is, look, you provoked me. You provoked me to anger. You provoked me to jealousy. So I'm going to provoke you to anger. I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. And the story, very briefly, I want to give you a couple of references because I just want you to see this. We referred to it a couple of weeks ago, the book of Hosea, where the prophet Hosea had a tough road, man. I mean, God asked Hosea to do some tough stuff, right? It says in Hosea 1 and verse 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, imagine you're Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. And he basically tells Hosea, look, you're going to pick up this wife and she's not going to be faithful to you and she's going to run around on you and all this sort of thing. And he says, I'm going to have you do that as a physical illustration of what all of Israel is doing to me spiritually. Hosea 2 and verse 2, plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Verse number five, for their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. And literally the nation of Israel is breaking God's heart because he has given them everything over and over again. And they say, no thanks. I'm going to go after my gods and my lovers. Jeremiah chapter three and verse eight. And I saw When for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. This is spiritual adultery going after other gods. I had put her away, notice, and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So God refers to himself in a spiritual relationship with Israel like a husband and a wife, just like Jesus Christ in the church. And he says, Israel was my wife, but because of her adulteries, I put her away, And gave her a bill of divorce. God's a divorce man. Because of her adulteries. Jeremiah 3 verse 14. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you unto Zion. Verse number 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. Jump down to Jeremiah 31, 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with her fathers in that day, that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. With my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. They provoke God. They provoke God, and God gave a righteous answer. You're going to treat me that way? That's fine. So verse 20 of Romans 10 is going to show us replaced affection. Replaced affection. And that's a quote from Isaiah 65, verse 1. Romans 1020, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. The Gentiles did not seek after God. In the, get the context. Israel is provoking God, running after other 
false gods and, 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 and playing the harlot before the one true God or husband. And God says, you know what? You went seeking other lovers. I'm going to go seek one too. The Gentiles, they're not seeking after me. I'm going to seek after them. I'm going to replace my affection for you with an affection for a new love, the Gentiles. That's what God's doing. Like Israel sought a new love, so now God is seeking after a new love. And he goes after people that were not seeking after him. God is the initiator of this new romance, of which we are the benefactors, by the way. God is the initiator. Can you see how that ties in with the whole idea of you provoked me by initiating new loves? I will provoke you right back to anger and jealousy. What makes you jealous in your husband-wife love relationship if your spouse stepped out on you not because somebody wooed them, they just chose to go seek somebody else? Would that not anger you? Would that make you jealous? And that's what Israel did to God, and so that's what God did to them. We saw back in Romans 9 and verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Verse 21, but to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That's the rebellious attitude. They have a rebellious attitude. That's the continuing of Isaiah 65. The last verse was verse 1. This is verse number 2 from Isaiah 65. And what happens is, is that God gives Israel chance after chance after chance, and they just would not repent. They would not respond. I've stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That does not mean that they were seeking after gain like they were prophet seekers. Gainsaying means to speak against. Gainsaying means that they would talk against God. They would speak up in rebellion against him. That's literally what the word means. And so God mentions all this, and basically with the idea is, look, look, there comes a time, and we are referring to Israel during the time of the church age, where the primary population of people that are saved by grace through faith are Gentiles. There comes a time, God says, where enough is enough. Enough is enough, and he walks away. That's a dangerous time. That's the thing that you do not want to experience. It's a challenge to reaching the world with the gospel because people provoke God by continuing in their own selfishness, despite the privilege that they've had to hear the truth over and over and over. And they say, not now, later, I don't want to, I'm busy, I'm having my fun, leave me alone. And the danger is, is that eventually God says, okay. And he leaves you alone. You don't want that. People provoke God, even though they've been warned. Well, that's a good warning. Can I just share my heart with you for a second? If you're here today, and you've heard the truth of God's word before, and you've resisted it, and there's something inside of you tugging on you that makes you feel like, man, I don't, I'm just not very comfortable here right now. I wish he'd finish so I can leave. Can, can I just maybe help you to think that 
It's not me that's bugging you. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit in your heart trying to tug on you and draw you and help you to realize that you need to surrender once and for all. This process of the gospel that's described for us in verses 14 and 15, that that has been provided for you today. The word of God has been preached and you have heard it. What remains is whether or not you'll believe it. That's the real issue, is it not? Don't keep resisting. A couple of verses, Isaiah 55, verse number six. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. And Hebrews chapter three and verse 15. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. As in the provocation. Hebrews is a New Testament book, but it's written to people with a Jewish background that would understand the provocation that we just looked at in our last point, where Israel over and over again provoked and provoked and provoked, and, he, and God is saying, hey, if you hear his voice today, today repent, today receive him, today turn, not like they did in the provocation, and were cast aside. Are they cast aside forever? No. Just glance down to chapter 11, verse 1. We'll get to that in January. They're coming back eventually but wow, has it been a tough road for Israel. And you don't want to live that life. It's time. Listen, we have this opportunity because God loves us so much. And I don't care how much sin you've had in your life. I don't care how rough you've had. I don't care what terrible things you've done. I don't care how awful your background in life has been. It doesn't matter. It is not greater than the depth of God's love for you. Do you understand that? He loves you more and you are still alive and well and able to respond. And whether maybe a friend invited you here today, they loved you enough to want you to hear it. Maybe you just wandered in thinking, I don't know, I'll just stop there. There are no such things as chance in God's economy. You are here for a reason and he wants you to respond. So I want to give you that chance. Let's all bow our heads.